Welcome to the Feisty Women's Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Gross, Ironman champion, PhD in women's history, and founder and CEO of Feisty Media. I started this show because I wanted to cut through the BS of diet culture and fitness culture and actually learn from high achieving women at the top of their game who have figured out how to feel and perform their best at every stage of life. So I chat with experts, elite athletes, and leaders who have learned to succeed despite the massive gender data gap in exercise and medical science and product development. Every episode is filled with information, advice, and anecdotes that will help you fulfill your potential as an athlete, mom, leader, or business owner. And listen up. If you don't subscribe to our women's performance newsletter, you are definitely missing out. It's totally free. So head over to womensperformance.com and subscribe now. That's womensperformance.com. This podcast is a production of Feisty Media. Hello, Feisties. Welcome to the Women's Performance Podcast. Thank you all for being here. I appreciate you all for listening. I just finished the most incredible conversation. I'm still kind of vibrating about it. So I wanted to jump in right now and record this intro while it is super fresh in my mind. The woman I spoke to is called Dr. Catherine Clancy, and she has a BA cum laude from Harvard University in Biological Anthropology and Women's Studies. She also has a PhD in Anthropology from Yale. So I could probably just stop the intro there and let you all just sit and listen to the incredible things she had to say like I did. Um, But I will read you the bio from her book cover because it really says it all. Kate is a feminist scientist who specializes in how environmental stressors affect menstrual cycles. She is a professor of anthropology at the University of Illinois, where her research and policy advocacy work also focus on sexual harassment in science and academia, racial and LGBTQ harassment, and underexplored topics like how vaccine and drug treatment trials ignore the menstrual cycle, which we do talk about um, at the end. Very interesting Um, Kate has also addressed Congress on sexual harassment of women in STEM, as well as consulted on two bills on sexual harassment in science. So if that wasn't enough, um, (laughs) she also has a relatively new book called Period, The Real Story of Menstruation which blends history, personal experience, and science to challenge many of the myths and false assumptions that have defined the study of the uterus. Um, I learned so much during this interview. Kate answers my questions about all of the above. I learned many incredible things about bodies that menstruate, like that we have cervical crypts that store sperm for later. (laughs) case we need it later, and uterine waves that control the speed of the sperm. Um, I also asked her about her work on how COVID vaccines, uh, many of you will remember this, COVID vaccines disrupted the periods and menstrual cycles of many of many people who menstruate, causing those of us who like me are the firmest believers in science to pause and question why we still aren't studying women. Um, So Kate and I talk about that. All of this is packed into a very interesting hour that I hope you enjoy as much as I did.
Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you about periods, in particular with a new lens, because I think it's perhaps, I think your lens or your ways of looking at periods and menstruation is perhaps more positive than the cultural norm. Is that accurate? I think so. Or at minimum that I encourage like a neutral understanding of it, Um, you know, with the idea that like there are actually really good reasons that not all of us feel super friendly towards our periods. Um, So I'm not trying to like enforce positivity, but I'm definitely trying to say, well, let's take a step back from our direct lived experience or our direct cultural experience and say, you know, if we bring in a few different things, might we start to think about it differently? Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. When did you first recognize that sort of the questions that we ask, especially in your field of study about periods, like sort of science and anthropology, biology are kind of limited? When did you first notice that? Um, I mean, I, th- I feel like it's been just sort of like stages of realizing over time. Um, I think I already had some sense of this, even when I was, say, a middle schooler or high schooler, you know, there was just this sense of like, why is the world not set up for people with bodies like mine? Or why am I assumed to have something wrong with me just by virtue of having like a uterus? You know, there were just these ways where, um, you know, something I talk about at the beginning of the book is is what happens when my mother informs our Dr. Debbie, my um, pediatric nurse practitioner, that I got my first period. And the first thing she tells me is you need to go on iron. Um, doesn't it ask, you know, how heavy is your period? Doesn't ask, you know, like, and especially because this is a performance podcast, right? You probably know a lot about iron and that um, absolutely people with like very high activity or very heavy bleeding do sometimes need iron supplementation, but it's Mm -hmm. actually not that hard to overdo it. Um, And there are times where it's dangerous to take iron. Um, And so, you know, looking back, that's actually a very surprising and terrible thing to tell a person without actually measuring their levels and seeing whether they actually have low iron. So, I mean, even as a 13-year-old, I was just like, what is going on? Um, But definitely my experience of college when I was exposed to anthropology um, and when I worked in the labs of Dr. Peter Ellison and Susan Lipson, and I learned about this field called reproductive ecology that I was just like, okay, I'm hooked. This is what I want to do from here on out. And reproductive ecology just means the study of basically how environment affects um, sort of reproductive functioning in a body. Right. There's so many threads that I <laughs> in there that I want to ask you about. Oh, you said somewhere the like, back to the periods and iron, because I wanted to pull that thread through a little bit. You're absolutely right that like for active women, we've had all kinds of different messaging about um iron, iron supplementation, what we should and shouldn't be doing. But you found a bunch of assumptions that were more bluster than scientific scrutiny. So um what are some of those assumptions that were sort of more bluster? <laughs> Right. Because, because of course, there are people who do have low iron, right? And of course, those people do need treatment. The question is, where is the low iron coming from? Um, or what is the origin of that problem? So the bluster comes from assuming that people with just what are sort of typical ranges of menstrual blood loss are inherently going to be iron deficient. And that basically when you mark that transition of becoming, going from a non-menstruating to a menstruating person, that suddenly makes you someone at risk for iron deficiency. Um, There are two things that I think are really important to know about the body and about bodies that are more say estrogen versus testosterone dominant in understanding this. One is that 
when you actually look at the data, it's not that at puberty, you suddenly see people who are starting to menstruate having a drop in their iron stores or their iron levels. But that's not true. No. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's not. What you see instead is that people who are suddenly experiencing increases in testosterone, so people who tend to have testicles, right? Um, Those folks are actually experiencing an increase in iron because of the way that testosterone promotes iron transport. So the sex difference, what we, what we call a sex difference yeah. is actually a, a, about um, an increase related to testosterone. Right. That's actually what causes that initial difference. So mm-hmm. really it's not that um, those of us without as much testosterone have low iron is that they have actually much higher iron. And it's like, what is going on with you guys? Like you guys are in danger of like hemochromatosis and stuff. You can like high iron's not great either. Right. Um, So I feel like that's one important line of evidence. The one other thing I'll just briefly say is that because of this embedded assumption that menstruation is the problem, um, a lot of people, a lot of people who menstruate who present with iron deficiency are often assumed to just have gynecological origin IDA. So then what happens is they're just prescribed iron um, without any real assessment of what's going on. Now, there have now since been in the last 20 some years, two or three large scale studies that have said, let's take a look at all these people who have had who are premenopausal, where we've assumed that their iron loss is because of menstruation. And let's do an endoscopy. Let's actually check their gastrointestinal tract because that's what you do mm. when, a, when say, a cis man presents with IDA is you do an endoscopy and most of the time you find some type of ulcer or internal bleeding. So across these studies, somewhere between 30 to 35% of the time, they find some type of gastrointestinal problem is actually the origin of the IDA. Well, I just wrote, so, whoa, on my notepad. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's incredible. I mean, it's enraging when you think about it, right? Yes. That someone can be walking around with internal bleeding, but because they're a menstruating person, they're not actually being tested for it. And they're being given an iron supplement too, which they're then not likely to absorb properly, I'm assuming from my very low level of biology knowledge. Yeah, because some percentage of them are people, it turns out, have celiac Um, Some percentage of them have ulcers, right? But you're right that what that means is that the fix of just giving them a supplement, they're probably not absorbing it appropriately. They have other absorption issues. And that's actually the thing that needs to be addressed. Now that said, right, there are two things that can absolutely affect people with uteruses more, especially active people. Um, One is heavy menstrual bleeding. So if we're talking about someone who really is heavy, it's really interfering with quality of life. Of course, that is sufficient blood loss that you could end up seeing iron deficiency. And then the other thing is if you're really active, especially if you're a runner, and I'm sure you know this, right? But like the, the action of hitting your feet on the ground, right? You kill red blood cells with every foot strike when you run. Mm-hmm. Um, so a very active person, especially one who's doing a higher impact activity like running, yes, they are also at risk um, of iron deficiency. But that mm-hmm. means that just the, st- the standard floor of like, is it just a regular menstruation event doing it? That's not the case. Wow. And I thought I just to go back to your first point too, I thought it was really interesting that shift in perspective um, around it's not that women or menstruating individuals are have less iron when they start menstruating, but it's that that um like individuals who don't menstruate are have more if they have more testosterone. 
right? And so like, that's just that shift of perspective of shifting away from like that male normative, this is, this is what the normal body is. And it's generally tends to be male and how we've done scientific study could have if, or as moving forward, new research can, can come out like, like what you just were saying about iron deficiency. Like if we're talking, and I think we do, we're starting to know, like, if we're looking at iron deficiency, okay, we might look for celiac disease or, or something else, but just the fact that that was so slow and late, (laughs) late coming, um, it feels like there's, there's a lot more to come from that shift of perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because just imagine, like, what other things have we been blaming on menstrual cycles that if we maybe pay a little more attention, we'll realize are an unfair characterization? Yeah, well, exactly. Okay, so speaking of which, I did note, you know, one of the things you said in the book was that in the 20th 20th century, we kind of all like the normative view of um, periods were that they were useless, or the menstrual cycle, it was useless, unless you're getting pregnant that month right so and I I kind of I had internalized this notion right as I was reading it I was like oh yeah this idea that oh poor us you know we have to go through this thing (laughs) this menstrual cycle thing every month and we have to suffer in this way but every month that we're not pregnant it's just like this useless thing that happens in our body right that's uncomfortable and for no reason or for only the reason of you know potentially having a child one day so what are some of the ways that we can shift the perspective on that? I think, I mean, one of them is looking at the actual evidence. You know, um, I think the way I put it in the book, and, and this is sort of the belief I adhere to, is, you know, within those of us who study evolution, human evolution, which reproductive ecology is kind of within that broader study of human evolution, um, you know, you know, we really get overly obsessed with this idea of whether things are adaptive or not. Like, you know, we adapted to get onto two legs or we adapted to have five fingers and an opposable thumb. And like, mm-hmm. we also, there's a couple of problems with it because we end up like inferring a whole bunch of inevitability to how we ended up. Um, but the other issue is that the other way that we kind of mischaracterize um, evolution is by kind of seeing it as like a huge burn if something isn't adaptive. So, you know, one of the big things that we thought for a long time was that menstruation is non-adaptive. We also think that clitoral pleasure is non-adaptive. We thought we have, we thought for a long time that pendulous breasts were non-adaptive. Orgasms among people with vaginas was non-adaptive. So you kind of start to see the trend, right? right? (laughs) Bodies also grant grandmothering, what a foolish idea that we would see, you know, later behaviors to sort of support our grandchildren. You know, you might be familiar with like the grandmother hypothesis, this idea that maybe we evolved longevity in order to support our daughter's children. Um, all of these different ideas, right, that get slammed with this whole, oh, these things are useless, non-adaptive, they're silly. Um, and again, strangely, kind of around the same groups of people we're, we're making these characterizations about. So I think the first thing is to notice those patterns and say, well, why is it that we're seeing some, some bodies are useless and some bodies are not useless? And how weird that the body that literally has like a 3D printer inside of it and makes humans mm-hmm. is the one that we're seeing is useless. Like that seems weird, right? Right. Um, right. <laughs> right. Like we're the ones who make the babies. Those of us with uteruses, <laughs> like we're the ones who have all the cool equipment. Yeah. So why aren't we paying more attention to the potential adaptive value of the cool equipment? I don't know. I think, I think this equipment's pretty cool. Um, So then the other piece is there is actually a a growing line of evidence that 
it is pretty hard for like the uterus needs actually a whole bunch of practice in order to develop the ability to grow tissue, to differentiate it into like a nice rich space for an embryo to touch down. Um, and it's kind of like a, it's a form of practice that increases the vi the chances for viability for a pregnancy down the line. And so, you know, we, we might menstruate 50, 100, 400 times in our lives. And a lot of that might actually be a way of kind of teaching the body how to produce the appropriate like tissue architecture mm -hmm. so that pregnancy can happen in the future. Doesn't mm -hmm. mean you have to use it for that purpose if you never want to, but, you know, it's sort of making that possibility there. Um, and that's, and the thing is, is like, we see people for whom it's their first birth. Um, so, you know, maybe fewer menstruations, fewer opportunities for building up that architecture, people who are much younger, um, you know, conditions like that. Um, there's maybe even some indirect evidence that people on long-term contraception. So people where their uterus has had fewer opportunities for practice, mm -hmm. they have increased risks of things like preeclampsia, which we know is kind of like the, when the uterus touches down, or sorry, when the embryo touches down, um, it doesn't, like embed as deeply under those conditions. And so you can kind of see how um, that practice is probably part of what allows that embedding to go better. Okay. That's so interesting because it's very opposite to the narrative of the, what do they call it? The older moms after 35. <laughs> yeah. Geriatric. Yeah. Geriatric. <laughs> that's the word you get, you know, and, and I was 35 when I had my daughter. Right. So some of that narrative is that like women are just sort of aging out of this ability to have kids, what you just said is um, kind of an opposing, like that there might be something actually around letting our uteruses have a chance to adapt a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that obviously as you get older, there are different types of risks. Of course. But what's really interesting when people trot out the chromosomal abnormality story, which is the whole, well, your eggs are developing more errors and stuff like that and more mutations the longer you wait. Um, when you actually look at the evidence, it's more like a U-shaped curve. So there are actually a lot more of those anomalies young in like teens, like people under the age of say, if I, I'm trying to remember the data, I want to say it's like under the age of 23 um, that you have actually an increased risk of chromosomal abnormalities. And then after the age of, I want to say like 37, 38. Yeah. So really like the prime time years are kind of 23 to 37 which is not quite the narrative we're usually pushed. Usually that window is, is pushed earlier, like say 18 to 28 or something. Yes. Well, and I, I, the narrative also is that it's with teen, with a teen being pregnant is more around like the social support and all of those things that you need to support a child rather than like any physiological piece. So mm -hmm. that's really interesting. Sure. And very early, very early teen pregnancies, not great, right? Because you're talking about a body that has not you know, that is not able to support pregnancy as well, not just because of the uterus practice piece, but because the birth canal, the person might not achieve full height. Like there's, there's lots of reasons <laughs> that it can not be great for young people. But, you know, we also have to be careful not to um, push our, you know, sort of like what are often white Western ideals of parenting and family on the global population. And there are actually lots of examples of, um, of populations where people have their first child fairly young, 15, 16, 17, but they have scaffolded support where they have, say, a 30-year-old mom or the granddaughter of that child 
they're the ones actually doing the majority of the child care for that first right. couple kids. <laughs> and mm -hmm. then there's a transition as that as that mom gets older with future kids, they might be doing more of it. So the 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 grandmothering scaffolding is actually actually turns out to be really important to how we understand the different decisions you know mm. people might make within their cultural context about when they might want to give birth. Right. So you're already blowing my mind. <laughs> this is amazing. You also said that the clitoris might be adaptive or that we saw it previously as unadaptive. Do you know ways in which the clitoris is adaptive as well? Well, I think there's two pieces. I mean, this is not um, uter like uh, genital architecture or anatomy is definitely not my expertise. Okay. Um, so I'm just sort of speaking generally that I think there's two things we can ask around the clitoris. Uh, one is sort of this broader question of why do we always have to find something to be adaptive for it to be meaningful, right? It might not ever be adaptive per se, but that doesn't make it not meaningful. And the pursuit of pleasure might actually, we could maybe, you know, silly idea here, just find that important in and of itself. Um, but then they're also, but then it, it begs the same question of like, well, why would sex be pleasurable or sexual activity be pleasurable for any human? Um, why is it adaptive if it's a pleasure that we understand to be occurring with someone with a penis versus someone with a clitoris? It's the same tissue developmentally. It's identical tissue. Um, so why, you know, like, why are we making that distinction and asking those questions of one group or with the other, we just kind of make a lot of assumptions. Yeah, it's very interesting. I'm going way off script here, by the way, now, but it's 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 always been super interesting to me that the um, you know, in women are like the organ that gives us pleasure and the way that we get pregnant are kind of separate, which is unlike a man. Like from an anthropological point of view, are there various theories or explanations for that? I'm I'm not convinced they're quite as separate. Um, oh, okay. because the clitoris is actually so much bigger than just what's protruding on the external genitalia. So, you know, if you've ever seen those cool 3D printers that look almost like a wishbone, <laughs> um, the clitoris has like two pretty big bulbs and potentially extends, there's, I think, spongy tissue that extends even beyond that, um, that is involved in the vaginal tract. So, I mean, while pe there's plenty of people who cannot achieve, most people, I think, um, don't readily like achieve orgasm just with vaginal penetration. Um, but, you know, I mean, again, I think it's kind of like an interesting question to ask of like, why, do, you know, I don't, I think there's plenty of people with penises out there who are just like, well, that's not also the most pleasurable for me either. There's like lots of things I enjoy, right? So maybe we need to think about the fact that like pleasure and reproductive activity bear some overlap mm -hmm. and don't in other ways as well, um, yeah. especially because there's people who... <laughs> Uh, enjoy lots of sexual activity that would never be conceptive um, and lots and lots of, and this is not just in humans, right? But across mm -hmm. the animal kingdom um, mm -hmm. that you see, <clears throat> sorry, I should have brought water in here instead of coffee, clearly, um, <laughs> that we, you know, that we actually understand that uh, lots of, lots of animals engage in a variety of pleasurable behaviors uh, with a variety of genders and sexes and humans do too. So again, like, maybe we need to start taking a step back from constantly saying in order for this to be important mm -hmm. in a in a body with a clitoris it has to be connected to reproduction right right absolutely as we head into summer rest and recovery are critical for improving sports performance reducing stress and living a long and healthy life we should all invest in better sleep so think about the thing you lay your head on for eight hours a night. 
If it's not exactly right for you, it can lead to needless tossing and turning, or worse, have you waking up with an unrelenting kink in your neck. My new Lagoon pillow has helped me improve my sleep immensely by pairing me with the performance pillow that has everything I need. So I personally was matched with the Otter pillow, shout out to Team Otter, which I love because it has a gentle cooling effect. And I was able to choose how much stuffing I wanted in it, which is super important to me because I'm doing a decent amount of CrossFit these days and my shoulders are kind of creaky. So having a pillow that is stuffed just to the right height keeps my neck and head in exactly the right position and comfortable for the entire night. And as of fall 2023, Lagoon launched their 100% mulberry silk pillowcases. It's cool to the touch, buttery soft, and great for your skin and hair. You've got to go check out this pillowcase if you want to feel great and look great every morning. Waking up for morning workouts has never felt better. I'm refreshed and pain-free thanks to my Lagoon pillow. To check it out for yourself, go to lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance and take the two-minute sleep quiz to find your perfect pillow match and then use the code PERFORMANCE for 15% off your first purchase. That's code PERFORMANCE at lagoonsleep.com forward slash performance, whole 15% off, and the link is in the show notes. You can just click through there. Endurance sports should be accessible to everyone, right? That's why we are so excited to be partnering with Motive. Motive is one of the fastest growing training apps in the world today with thousands of amateur athletes signing up every month and a nearly perfect 4.9 star rating in the app store. You are not a template and your training plan should not be either. Prepare for running races, triathlons, cycling events, duathlons, or swim runs, however your season schedule shapes up, and get training written by some of the best coaches in the world in each discipline who know what it takes to help amateur athletes reach their goal on race day. The app takes the training written by those experts and then creates the most optimal training plan for your schedule, abilities, and goals. Plus, the training is fully customized to your race schedule, how much you can train each week, your current abilities, and the goals you want to achieve in your race. You can use the app for free as long as you want or get all the upgraded features from the app for just $19.99 a month. But as a feisty listener, you can sign up at mymotive.com and use the code FEISTY for two months of full premium access. That's right, you get two months of premium for free. So you quite literally have nothing to lose. So head over to mymotive.com, M-Y-M-O-T-T-I-V.com and use the code FEISTY, F-E-I-S-T-Y. And on a personal note, I know the founder of Motive and he is driven to make triathlon and all endurance sports more accessible for the athletes who care about their performance, but who aren't quite ready for a full-time personal coach. If that sounds like you, definitely try the app for two months for free. You literally have nothing to lose. Thank you. 
for decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are so excited to be working with Hedas. Hedas designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedas unlocks the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research, creates better shoes for women that support their longevity and performance, and establishes new design standards to promote transparency in a male-biased industry. Hedas have a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and to allow for female toe shape, a special kind of plate in the midsole to keep tired legs going, a narrow heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take the pressure off our Achilles, and a rounded instep to create a snug fit. Hedas has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've personally been running in the Alma Cruise and I love them. It's the shoe I always wanted and never knew I needed. The fit is perfect in every way. You can get your own pair of Hedas at Hedas.com and use the code FEISTY20 for 20% off. That's FEISTY20 at Hedas.com and it will all be in the show notes. You, I think you call periods wondrous and weird. Um, in one, in one of the videos that I watched, which I loved. Um, and then some of the stuff that comes out through the book is about some, and these are things that were entirely new to me, like follicular waves, um, that I, I will let you explain, um, cervical crypts, uh, uterine waves, um, contractions of the cervix that discourage sperm. So can you unpack some of that wonder, (laughs) the wondrous part of the period? Yeah, I mean, and part of it is just that I think biology is wondrous, generally speaking, like the more you take any process of the body and go, let's look at this a little bit more. It's like, and it does what? Like the (laughs) stomach, the stomach lining is like cilia or like there's like little fingers, you know, or I mean, just any part of human biology or any biology really like when you really dig in is just, just wild and wonderful. And so when it comes to menstruation, so starting with the follicular waves, I love that story just because I got to collaborate with the two people who figured it out in humans, um, Roger Pearson and Angie Bearwald. And, um, you know, their story is so lovely because, you know, Roger was an established animal scientist who studied reproduction across all sorts of animals. And the funny thing is, is that among sort of domestic animals, we've known for a while about the existence of follicular waves. What that means is just, you know, when when we think about, say, a menstrual cycle, um, the way it's often described to us is that first half of the cycle, the follicular phase, that's when um, the egg is growing. And there might be some competition with some other oocytes during this time, but then like somehow one wins mm-hmm. and is ovulated. And then in the second half of the cycle, it's like traveling in the fallopian tube. Maybe it's connecting with sperm, maybe not, you know, and we sort of see that solo travel, but usually that's where the story of the ovary itself ends when Mm -hmm. you're learning about the cycle. And it turns out that's not what's happening at all, that the ovaries are constantly up to shit. If you'll, can I swear in this, (laughs) Uh, I I can restate too, that the ovaries are just constantly up to stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They are, you know, they are the the recruitment wave that is sort of leading to that dominant follicle, that's actually 
happening multiple times. It's happening more or less continuously as opposed to only in the first half of the cycle. And we've known this, we've known about follicular waves, these waves of recruitment and regression of follicles in dominant species, because for all sorts of capitalist reasons, we are very invested in the reproduction of things like cows, right? <laughs> um, so this was well known in cows because mm. we care way more about getting about reproduction right in cows than yeah. humans. <laughs> So it was Roger who finally was like, well, let's look at this with humans, like he and or he and Angie together, really, right, that they realized that ultrasound technology had kind of improved enough by the time they were asking those questions that they could actually do an analysis of this. They did these daily um, transvaginal ultrasounds, which if you've had an ultrasound, a transvaginal ultrasound, having one every single day Mm. doesn't sound super fun, but they got over 50 people to engage in that research, which is so important and it's such a valuable data set. Um, and they were able to show that just like cows and other, you know, uh, other related mammals that our ovaries don't just sort of like sit around and eat bonbons the second half of the cycle. They're just right. constantly doing these waves of recruitment. Hmm, cool. Um, what about the cervical crypts? So the crypts again, and this is the challenge in writing this book um, and in just being someone who studies uteruses and, and the people who, uh, who have those, this, you know, these types of parts is that, um, the research is just so lacking. So there's really one study and it's from the eighties that can tell us something about cervical crypts, but it's a pretty telling study and it matches some of the things we understand from other animals. So like, I think even though it's old, um, and I've, you know, I periodically look to see, like, is there anything new in the literature? Anyone else has looked at this and I never see anything new. But again, it feels it's it's fairly well done. So what they did is they took a whole bunch of people who were about to have hysterectomies and said, hey, can, do you mind if we like artificially inseminate you a couple days before your hysterectomy to kind of see what the sperm does? Um, and they were fine with it. Uh, or like some number of people consented. And then they sectioned when they, after the after these voluntary hysterectomies that people were getting for various reasons. Um, they sectioned the cervix. They like cut lots of thin slices to kind of see where the sperm were. Um, there also were studies like this of, of studying people with voluntary hysterectomies to see how many of them actually get pregnant. And so some of the things that we understand about very early pregnancy and pregnancy loss comes from this type of work. Um, anyway, they sectioned out these you know, the, the cervical slices, and they were able to see that there were sort of pockets of sperm in, in different like folds along the cervix that seemed to indicate, you know, that the, that the uterus is kind of storing them for later or recruiting them to certain areas, um, potentially for later deployment or potentially because like, Hey, you guys aren't up to snuff. Actually, we're going to hold you back. They sort them out. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and then, also, like we can control the speed of this. We, we, now I'm saying it like I can control personally. Right. <laughs> we have uterine waves that can control the speed of the sperm. Yes. So there, this, there are actually a handful of studies on. So not just like one from the 80s. Um, though, again, this is an understudied thing. So there's only a handful of studies to look at. But um, something we do know is that the uterus is, uh, you know, it's, it has muscle contractions, right? That's why, uh, I mean, that's basically how we discovered that misoprostol was uh, an abortion drug, right? Was that it caused contractions in the gastrointestinal tract for people with ulcers who were using it as an ulcer treatment. And then we were like, oh, it also causes uterine contractions. Funny. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's the, um, the uterus is doing all sorts of like muscular work uh, at lots of points in the cycle. So not just during, um, 
sort of during labor, you know, which is the primary time that we think about it is when you're experiencing what we do literally call contractions, right? Um, so in the early part of the cycle, when, you know, you're not necessarily trying to get pregnant because there's no egg there, the uterus isn't really receptive or anything like that. You can imagine that the primary thing that's on, that would be sort of, um, the smartest move at the time would probably be to have waves that go downward from fundus to cervix because you're trying to keep like bacteria and other pathogens out. Um, but you're going to take a risk during maybe receptive periods and have the waves go the other way because you also want to encourage mm-hmm. sperm up into um, the uterus and into ideally the fallopian tubes or the crypts if they if that's where they belong. Um, and so that that movement during certain periods is upward. And then, of course, you, you see it going back down again for things like menses. Right. I love that. There's because I feel like there's a it's kind of the kind of a joke um where oh how fast someone's sperm is or like this this like kind of manliness joke about my sperm got in there it's like actually no. <laughs> like mm-hmm. like my body's like my body's deciding um what's happening over there. So I think right. that's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, you know, like in, in the book, one of the things I talk about is like the hero's journey and how the sperm are kind of mm-hmm. given a hero's journey. Yes. But the egg, the egg are not, the, or they are, but they're the part of the, they're the part of the sperm's hero journey because they're the waiting princess that gets rescued. Right. And, you know, I think when we look at the actual biology, what we see is a lot more partnership. You know, I, we don't even have to flip the script and say that the, the hero is the egg because that's not accurate either. I think instead we have to find a different narrative that says, well, what happens when these two, when these two gametes um, and these two, bo- and, you know, and this body are operating in collaboration, mm. you know, because it's not yeah. necessarily in a sperm's best interest to have like a wonky sperm end up fusing. Um, and it's definitely not in the best interest of the person with the uterus who has to put up with nine months of gestation and years of lactation, right? So there's lots of reasons that everyone's trying to be picky. Everyone's trying to make their best decision here, not obviously intentionally, but just in terms of whatever glycoprotein signaling is happening, you know, at down at that molecular level or whatever. Um, and that's, you know, that's what's motivating a lot of these decisions. Um, I'm working on a pregnancy loss book right now. And one of the things that I'm really struck by is how, you know, it's possible that that sperm egg fusion moment is a lot less choosy than we think. Um, mm-hmm. That again, both both groups are trying hard to sort of act in concert and have this fusion happen only when it's a really good idea. Mm-hmm. But the fact that there are so many super funky embryos suggests that actually even that area, even that time period isn't quite as choosy as we've previously thought. Right. So interesting. Um, I love the collaboration imagery instead of having the hero, the the sperm hero journey. That's so, that's great. Um, and you also um, lead a science lab that studies the environmental stressors that can affect the menstrual cycle. Now I'm going to ask you a huge question <laughs> about that. And we've only got, you know, 20 minutes or so left, but um, what are some of the environmental stressors that affect menstruation? Like what are some of the main things that have come out of that that lab and the studies that you and the others have done. Sure. So, I mean, so in the book, I actually have one chapter devoted to sort of each broad category. So energetic stressors, immunological stressors, and psychosocial stressors. And then I actually had a whole chapter all about endocrine disrupting chemicals and other ways that we think about environment that I ended up pulling from the book because it didn't, it just didn't fit this, the book. Um, but it ended up being a standalone, like a magazine article for American scientists. So, so that material is still out there, um, just not in the book. 
And, you know, when we think about these three or really four, I would argue, and, and it came, it's been coming up a lot as I've been studying pregnancy loss as well, the endocrine disrupting piece. Um, but a lot of times when, uh, when people with uteruses encounter stressors, um, so often the call is to ask them to do less or withdraw in some way from public life. Um, and that's the part that I think is, you know, like I can talk about the nitty gritty of energetic stressors and constraint. And like, if you exercise a lot, um, will we'll experience some changes to your menstrual cycle, right? But you know what can fix that? You don't necessarily have to exercise less. You could eat more. Eat more. <laughs> we talk about this a lot with LEA and Red S. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so the thing that I find so interesting when we like just take just starting with energetic stressors, right? What I find so remarkable about that narrative is how much fat phobia and gendered expectations of what bodies should look like end up distorting the science so that the message people hear is, well, I need to do less. I need to do fewer high intensity workouts or, you know, not try so hard at this or whatever. Um, instead of actually I could eat more to support my activity and then I could still get to do all the stuff I want to do, you know, and that's not to say people like all people should do lots of high intensity exercises just, but there's lots of people out there. Like I'm one of them. Um, and I, I think you are too, who love movement, who it's a part of our identity. It's a part of a thing that brings us joy. It's, it's, right now, my only therapist, you know, mm -hmm. like it's, 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 it's needed in a lot of ways in my life. Um, and it's my only real hobby. Uh, and so, you know, like I would rather consume more to match my activity than do less of a thing that I love. Yeah. So in this case, the environmental stressor is a, is a social narrative about, about what we're supposed to look like basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that, you know, and I, I talk a lot about a book that I adore, uh, Sabrina Sp Strings book, Fearing the Black Body, on um, the Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. And she, it's a, you know, it's an, it's an academic book, but honestly it reads, I think it reads for any audience. It's really, really, really well done. I can't recommend it enough. Um, and I just feel like every chapter, she just picks apart our, um, our, our sort of a historical understanding of beauty and how, like, I think we've all kind of forgotten that skinniness didn't used to be beautiful. Um, but also that she racializes it. She really shows how a lot of these, ex these origins explicitly come from the sort of ascetic aesthetic of pure and, um, you know, like that, that a lot of this is cultural as opposed to biological. Mm -hmm. And if we, if we start to pay attention to that more, we'll realize that sort of these ideas around thin, normative, white femininity are harmful to all bodies. And that when we can kind of relax our understandings on that and instead think about, well, what's the movement I need to feel joy? What's the food I need to nourish my body? Um, it starts to move you away from how is my body supposed to look? Yeah. Yeah. And when you, you kind of overlay like an intersection of, of sports as well. And like what sporting bodies are supposed to look like, what endurance sports bodies are supposed to quote unquote look like. It's, it's really interesting. Cause it's also, again, back to like, we're used to comparing to male bodies or male body normative body fat percentages um, in a lot of the studies. And then that science comes down to us that it doesn't necessarily apply just whole, whole hog to us as female athletes. So it's like just really interesting that it's like the intersection there to me is super interesting. And I love watching kind of the evolution of if you look at elite sport, like bodies, women's bodies in elite sport are also evolving. Like we see certain sports where 
the women are starting to look stronger or, you know, more muscular, just bigger, more muscular um, in certain ways that 20 years ago we wouldn't have seen. So it's very heartening and it's because Mm -hmm. of research like yours. Um, Are there other like when I think of when I think of environmental stressors, the first things I think of are like the cleaners in our home and like these types of things that can um, potentially disrupt our hormones. Is that true? What have you found? It it does appear to be um, endocrine dis- disrupting chemicals like phthalates, bisphenols, um, particulate matter from traffic. Um, Those types of things are absolutely things that can harm our reproductive potential, that can disrupt our menstrual cycles. There's increasing evidence that endocrine disrupting chemicals are harmful, can increase the risk of things like endometriosis. Um, So there are a lot of ways in which uh, climate change and the human-made ways that we have harmed our environment um, do have direct consequences on the bot- on those of us with uteruses. Um, and in particular, there are ways in which we are at higher risk of exposure to some of these phthalates just because of gendered expectations, right? So we're talking about, we might be talking about sex or at least sex organs like uteruses, but we're also talking about gender here because, you know, what gender tends to be the one who wears more makeup? cosmetics, a lot of them contain phthalates. Who's the one who does the most cleaning or engages most with baby toys? Um, Who uses menstrual pads and diapers, both of which contain volatile organic compounds and often phthalates, right? So some of us are engaged. And there's also building materials and and particulate matter, um, which is a different sort of grouping of phthalates that then you might see men and people who are gendered like in, and who are gendered more masculine to be exposed to more for sure. Um, but it's interesting to me that so many of the phthalates are ones that people who are feminine, trans feminine, non-binary women, um, you know, and by women, I categorize cis women, trans women, all are women, um, that groups like that are the ones more at risk of being exposed to. And I, I want to talk about the COVID vaccine too. Um, that was super interesting. We were working with an academic at the time who then once they once there was this realization that there were women who were finding a disruption in their periods after having the vaccine, you know, we kind of helped find women to be part of one of the studies that then followed. So it's super, I think it's super core to our audience about this. And the, the other thing, and I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about this, but um, because the vaccine was so polarizing, you know, um, socially for us, mm. I think um, obviously not studying, like not studying women's hormones or reproductive systems when you're rolling out a new vaccine is problematic. Yes. <laughs> right? And for those of us, like I'm, I'm vaccinated, you know, I'm overall like a pro vaccine, you know, I don't want to come out with this question of like, wait, but that could be wildly pro- <laughs> problematic. And mm-hmm. so we, you know, now or in future, we might be lucky to have dodged a bullet there somehow and not studying um, women's reproductive systems. So hmm. I don't really know what my question is there. I'd really love to know um, what you think, what was the disruption women were experiencing and mm-hmm. what is the research that that is being done differently now? You know, I'm so grateful for the ways in which you asked that question, because, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are typically pro-science who are like, stick every vaccine in my arm possible, who were, who had a moment of pause, right? When some of these stories start coming out or when they themselves had these experiences. And what I 
um, what I would encourage all of us to consider is that there are such a thing as complex truths <laughs> and that when we are frustrated by, you know, so for instance, my frustration is with the fact that our government does not actually have clear guidance around how to run clinical trials in such a way that asks enough questions about multiple bodily systems, right? Um, there is no, the only priority when it comes to thinking about uteruses for most vaccine trials is asking your last menstrual period to ensure that you are not pregnant because they, and, and there is a good reason for this, right? Um, you eventually want to be able to test vaccines on pregnant people because you do eventually want to know what are the potential, uh, are there potential drawbacks to, you know, to vaccinating a pregnant person and are, is there any potential harm to a fetus? Um, but you only want to do it when that person is clearly consenting to that risk to their body and their, and their fetus. So mm -hmm. you don't want to act, you don't want somebody to not realize they're pregnant participate in something that is not intended for pregnant people and then expose a fetus, you know, that that's like a giant, that would be, that's a giant controversy. Anti-vax people would be all over it. It would be bad. Right. Yeah. So, but that's basically where the questions end. So what they do is they, they ask you last menstrual period. And then if it turns out you are having potentially conceptive sex, you are usually strongly encouraged or in some cases required to be on hormonal contraception, which you can imagine would mask any symptoms that are related to the menstrual right. cycle, right? right? Yeah. Those are the conditions under which a lot of these vaccines are done. Again, the, the belief behind it is out of a belief that we should be protecting fetuses until we've established safety in adults. You don't want to start testing on other types of bodies. Totally get that. Consequence is that we know nothing about the effect really on the uterus. Now, I spoke to people, like some people reached out to me who are participating in, in trials, who in trials thought that they were experiencing menstrual changes. And then when they tried reporting them, were basically told, no, you're perimenopausal or you're imagining it, or there's no way there can be a link there. So, I mean, and that could be just an N of like three, right? Like, I'm not saying that some wide, like, I think, again, we need to hold complex truths. I am not arguing for some giant cover-up. Right. What I'm arguing is that there might have been a couple of individual times where maybe there was some advocacy attempted mm -hmm. and nothing really came of it. I don't think that's great, but also, you know, we're talking about probably, you know, tens of thousands of patients they were managing. Mm -hmm. So again, I'm looking up at the system and saying, why was it set up so that it was going to be this way? Right. The one other thing I'll say is that the uterus is an immune organ. That's why I devoted a whole chapter of, of you know, on Im immunological effects of the uterus. And part of the immune system is bleeding and clotting. Like when you cut yourself and you start bleeding, right? Eventually, like stuff gets sent to that cut to help it clot and to form a seal so that bacteria can't get in, right? What's the one organ of our body that is constantly bleeding and clotting because you have to stop, you, you know, if you don't stop the bleeding during menstruation, you just bleed endlessly. So there's bleeding and clotting happening in your uterus during menstruation. So what's the one organ in the body that actually is very involved with that part of immune function? The uterus. So again, like if we, mm. if we're, if we're designing treatments mm. yeah. that have immune components like a vaccine, and especially the mRNA platform that potentially is like really immunogenic, like people get really strong reactions to these vaccines compared to say, like the flu vaccine doesn't do anything to me, but the COVID vaccine, I'm out for two days every time. Um, I still do it <laughs> every time. I'm, I'm, I am boosted to the max and I will continue to be boosted to the max. Um, 
But again, we have to recognize if it's really immunogenic, it's having downstream effects on lots of organs. As far as we can tell, with the evidence that we have, I feel very comfortable saying these effects are not fertility related. They are related to short-term inflammatory changes that have downstream effects on all sorts of organs. But that doesn't mean it's not scary. That doesn't mean it's not distressing. That doesn't mean we don't deserve better answers and better analyses of what's happening to our bodies in these times. Right. So do you think that when the vaccine was first rolled out, that they knew that there were going to be no consequences for female fertility? Do you think that that could have been said with confidence? I am not enough of a vaccine expert to like know one way or the other, but I I suspect that they were, you know, I mean, again, this is an emergency authorization in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. Um, I feel fairly confident that, that they were fairly confident. I mean, I, I don't think like mechanistically, I struggle to imagine how, how invoking a strong immune response would harm fertility. Right. But I can absolutely see how invoking a strong immune response would affect the would temporarily affect the bleeding and clotting mechanisms of a uterus. Right. And to me, those are actually not the same thing. The uterus's job isn't just about making babies, right? There's actually other stuff that it does and other ways that it's relevant to the body um, and just other things it's going to be doing when it's responding to different types of stressors. And so when it's, it's response to this stressor was, you know, in a minority of people, but a very strong minority, um, you know, the effect was bleeding quite a bit. Right. Oh, okay. Last question before you go. It's a big one though. (laughs) Um, If you were in charge of education around menstruation, um, what would you put in your syllabus? Well, to what age group or to what type of people just generally, or. Yeah, maybe. Well, I was going to say to, for sex education for kids, but then I didn't want to put an age group on that because I'm not sure we have the age right to begin with. So you can pick the age. (laughs) But if they're, you know, they're school kids. You know, honestly, I think menstruation is so weird and so cool that I, you know, and I, again, this is something I say in the book, but I actually wish it should be taught. It was taught with the same level of delight and curiosity as we learn about the planets of our solar system or dinosaur bones. I think it should just be integrated into the curriculum as opposed to being like part of sex education, especially because menstruation itself is not actually about sex, right? So we like teach the menstrual cycle partly because we're trying puberty, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I get the point behind it, but like understanding the menstrual cycle has value beyond the people who are about to menstruate. Mm-hmm. You know, it also has a lot of value for all bodies mm-hmm. and it has value in terms of like raising all these cool questions. Um, you know, there's a lot of value in learning about the menstrual cycle because of the way it raises questions around culture. Mm-hmm. It raises questions around, um, you know, around, energy, around immune function. It helps us understand how the the world we inhabit affects bodies. Um, It helps us understand babies, which, you know, kids are super curious about. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've been through both of that with, you know, I have a 15 year old and a six year old, and it's so fun as they go through the different levels of trying to increase their understanding of like how a baby is made. Mm -hmm. Um, Those questions don't start at like sex ed, like they start when the kid right. is three. Yes, um, of course. So, you know, like I think those things are really relevant and interesting to start talking about as soon as possible, especially because if you're a menstruating person, um, you know, the children around you can't help but notice, right? Um, I, you know, I change pads and talk about my period in front of my children. I've been doing that for a long time, um, you know, such that 
both my kids think they're kind of cool. Though I will say my second kid now um, does not think periods are cool um, expressly because she's like, you know, I'm constantly doing like book events. Um, you know, I've had to travel a few times um, for my period book. And so she'll be like, mama, why do you yike periods so much? <laughs> you got to go away again. Um, and so she's really it's like, so now she's it has like a negative like, connotation. Yeah. yeah. So like periods are starting to have a negative connotation for her. Cause I'm like, sorry, honey, I have to go work on my, you know, I have to go do a podcast or I have to go, um, I have to go to Seattle or whatever. And she's just yeah. like, why do you yike periods so much? <laughs> <laughs> That's so cute. She'll come, she'll come around though. Yeah, totally. My daughter, um, when she got her period, her first reaction was to FaceTime me from the bathroom <laughs> to, to show me everything that was happening, you know? And I'm like, this is, for me, that was a parenting win, but it's also kind of funny because I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is this is the opposite experience to my experience, you know, mm-hmm. where I just kind of, you know, like, like you talked about in the book too, like the silence and the shame, right? So you, you know, I didn't realize it was silence and shame at the time. I just took care of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. My, um, no, my older child, uh, my, my son is trans. Um, and the, when he, the first time he used a tampon, mm-hmm. I remember just being like, here you go, just go try it. You stick it in and that's where it goes. And I like started to leave the bathroom and he was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You are not leaving. This is, you know, which is how it was for me. I was just handed it. And I was like, you put it in, look, there's, you know, and you unfurl the little instructions, the, the thin yeah. piece of paper that you like have to unfurl and open. And yeah. you look at the diagram and you're like, what angle? I don't even understand. <laughs> you know? um, and he was like, no, no, you are not leaving. Like we're doing this together. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and it was such a different experience than my own first time having to try out using a tampon. You know, it's like for so many of us, the first time you use it is when you're like, oh, I'm, I was, I'm about to go swimming. Right. Um, well, and I, I, I did actually read that story in your book and I, or somewhere last night. And I, I, my first time, this is probably TMI, but like I put the part of the applicator in too. I just didn't know. <laughs> right. And then later I was like, oh, that didn't really work that well. <laughs> I need to, I need to ask a new question. How does, how does this really work? You know? Mm-hmm. So I was very heartened by that story. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah, cause it's not, I don't think it's obvious, right. When you insert it and you realize it's two parts that like, mm-hmm. then there's a piece to pull out at, like, I think that's not obvious if you're just looking at the description and the line by line and you're freaking out and you're doing your and best. You're 12. And, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, well, this has been so great, Kate. Um, thank you so much. I, yeah, I feel like we could talk forever. Um, and I've really enjoyed like going through your book and I hope everyone will take a moment to read it. Um, where can we follow you? Where can we find you? Where can we buy the book? Uh, you can buy the book anywhere. I certainly prefer bookshop, um, since they support local indies, obviously your local bookstore is always best. Um, I also have an audio version. I narrate it. So if you're more of an audiobook person, you can definitely listen, um, which I'm for a lot of nonfiction. I actually prefer audio. Um, so those that's available Libro FM or Audible. So really anywhere. Um, and you can find me mostly, honestly, these days on Blue Sky or Instagram. Um, but you can also just go to my website, kclancy.com. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Building muscle can be tough and gains can be so slow, even for those of us who do a lot of strength training. As an ex-endurance athlete who is now in perimenopause, I know this all too well. It can be frustrating to put in the time in the gym and not see the results I'm looking for. That's why it's super important to take the right supplements at the right time. One of those supplements is essential amino acids, which are needed to trigger muscle protein synthesis. Muscle protein synthesis happens when you eat high quality protein, like eggs or whey. And by supplementing with additional essential amino acids, you can make sure you are getting the full benefit of your training sessions. Targeted essential amino acid formulas can be up to four times more effective than just eating protein. I've been taking amino acids for almost a year, and in combination with eating quality protein and a couple other supplements, I have managed to turn the tides on age-related muscle loss, which starts at 30 for women, by the way, and I have continued to make strength gains as I head towards 50. AminoCo has been a longtime sponsor of Feisty Media and has supported all of our brands and podcasts over the years. I recommend starting with AminoCo Perform, and you can grab some at aminoco.com forward slash performance. If you enter the code performance, you will save 30% and receive a free gift if it is your first purchase. Give it a try and let me know how it goes. That's aminoco.com forward slash performance and use the code performance to save 30%. As a lifelong runner and triathlete turned CrossFitter, I am stoked to announce that the athletic eyewear brand Tofosi Optics has joined us as a partner here at Feisty Media. Tofosi sports glasses hit all the marks for athletes. They are shatterproof poly bicarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance, which I 100% need. They stay in place when you are moving. The hydrophilic rubber nose pads actually get more grippy the more you sweat, so they are secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in hot conditions. No matter what sport you do, Tofosi has shades for you. Whether you love tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, or just hanging out on the beach. They are super reasonably priced, which I love, so I can have multiple pairs that go with any outfit. And of course, feisty listeners get a special discount. So head on over to tofosioptics.com and use the code FM20. FM as in feisty media to get 20% off your order. That's FM20 at tofosioptics.com. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy for you.